we all have that one friend or family member, uh, you know, that one that, that finishes the, the toilet paper and, and neglects to, to add uh, another roll to the, <laughs> to the pile. Or that one that clops your leftover pudding and leaves the, the bowl on the counter. You know that one? The one that wants to talk with you until late at night and you just want to go to sleep. You know, you got work the next morning, you got that meeting, but hey, they just want to talk. <laughs> Some people will say that you like to boor, you like to farm. You know, you, you go to other people's houses and you start farming there. <laughs> it's an expression I've heard before. And, and perhaps a fancy word that we could use is a sojourner. Have you heard of sojourners? Israel were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, how do you pronounce that word? Is it sojourner or is it sojourner? You know, I, I also thought it was like a fancy French word, you know, sojourner. <laughs> Somebody pitches up for a meeting uh, the next day and he's like, sorry, I was sojourning at the coffee bar before I came up here. But, but YouTube says the American and British pronunciation is both sojourner. So that's what we are talking about this evening, sojourners in the land of Egypt. As you can see, we have an, a tourist there uh, in front of the pyramids, probably behaving inappropriately, as we'll find most tourists in a land that doesn't belong to them. Uh, <laughs> but Israel were sojourners or temporary residents, occupants. Sojourners are not permanent. They are temporary. And they are, but they are still living there. They're not a tourist. They are residents, but temporary. And so when the Bible talks about them being sojourners, it's got to do with, it's just one step along the way. They are there now for a time, but that's not their final destination. And there are two theories for the length of their stay. It's either 215 years or 430 years, depending on how you work out the dates in First Kings, I think it is, and some other genealogies. So it's either 215 years or 430 years, depending what theory you ascribe to. But the point is, that it is a, a temporary occupation, even though it doesn't seem like it. That's quite a long time. I mean, most of us aren't going to live to 215 years in one home, <laughs> let alone for 430 years even. But the point is here that they were temporary in their position. God had other plans for them. We know God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as we followed. And we know that Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt and then Jacob and, or Israel and his sons joined them in the land of Egypt at the end of Genesis, and that's where we pick up today. God had another destiny for them, another land. However, they were not there yet, and in fact, they were not planning on going there yet. At this stage, they are still in Egypt before Moses. That's what we're looking at. Their time in Egypt, sort of before Moses led them out with the Exodus. Uh, and this was also what we could maybe call their waiting period. And initially, it started out pretty well. We read they were uh, multiplying, they were very fruitful. And then a new Pharaoh arrives on the scene. He's unaware of, you know, what Joseph did for the Pharaohs before him. And, you know, the whole drought. And Joseph managed to save Egypt from wreck and ruin by storing up all that bread or ordering them to store up all that bread. Um, and it goes from this wonderful, prosperous uh, time for Israel and for Egypt New Pharaoh arrives on the scene and Israel becomes oppressed. Israel becomes slaves because the Pharaohs are worried about uh, what's going to happen with this new nation of Israel. And that's significant because as we shall see, this is the first time it's not referred to as 
Jacob and his sons, or Israel and his sons, they talk about the Israelites, the nation of Israel. So at this point, at their time of sojourning in England, they are now a nation. They are now a completed people. God's promises to Abraham have been fulfilled. His offspring have become a nation. And that's what we're going to look at. So today we're going to look at the first chapter of Exodus. It's a bit of a lengthy read. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Otherwise, God willing, it should be on the screen if I haven't forgotten to put it up there. Yes, it's there. <laughs> Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to, ja to Egypt with Jacob or Israel, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, not me, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt, as we know. Now Joseph and his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites, not the sons of Jacob, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I can imagine that must have been quite an amusing thing to hear. Maybe not to Pharaoh, but, but that's quite a creative answer to come up with that. Where have you heard of that before? <laughs> Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And that's why we know Moses was spared because his mother put him in a basket and sent him down the river. Uh, but this was a time of persecution. It also shows some Hebrew um, rabbis came up with the theory that this Pharaoh wasn't actually too clever because a man could have multiple wives, but a, a wife couldn't take multiple men. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so it was a bit silly to let the boys live, but rather let the girls die and the boys live because then there wouldn't be enough women to go around. But they didn't have a problem with, with marrying a lot of women. 
Um, so that's our digress. That's just one of the theories there. But this is quite a difficult sojourn in the land. As we see, it starts off very nice, like I said, but then we see it getting a bit more difficult for the Israelites. But through this all, we can see God's faithfulness to them. When the, when the Egyptians oppressed them, they multiplied and they were exceedingly fruitful. And he was kind to the midwives when they refused to obey Pharaoh and do that vile thing. And so through all of this, we can see God's faithfulness and God's consistency with his chosen people in this passage. Father God, as we look at your word this evening, I pray that you will open our hearts and our ears to be receptive to what you have to say and that you will teach us as we go through this. Amen. Amen. So three things from this passage. Firstly, Israel was fruitful. Israel was a fruitful nation. Well, they became a fruitful nation from 70 people. Not because they did anything out of the ordinary, but because God, because God had blessed them. God had chosen them. God had said, you are my people. God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a nation. And so Israel was ultimately fruitful because God had blessed them. We know it started with 70 of them, and as we looked at Jacob last time, this was now the beginning of the nation. This was the nation. And you can probably multiply quite impressively with 70 people over a period of 215 or 430 years. So there is that, practically, that practicality of it, but we also read that they were exceedingly fruitful. Not just fruitful, but exceedingly fruitful. And I think the Bible makes that distinction because, like I said, if you have 70 people multiplying over a period of a couple hundred years, you're probably going to have a sizable nation. Uh, but we read they were exceedingly fruitful, above and beyond the normal uh, processes of human reproduction and lifespan and all that kind of thing. So, and so much so that they filled the land, as we read. Uh, and the clever people have worked out from the lists in, Is, uh, in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus that there were probably about 600,000 men. We do read that. But on top of that, altogether, it was probably about 2 million people, somewhere in that range, if we're counting uh, women and children as well. So for 70 people came 2 million people, basically. And we can see this is now a sizable nation. So much so as well that they began to catch up to the Egyptians, who had been living there for hundreds, thousands of years before them. They had only been there for a couple hundred, and they were now catching up to the Egyptians, that they feared them, that if the Israelites left Egypt, there would be a big hole, big gap. That was one of the things that Pharaoh mentioned. They might fight with our enemies. They might become more prosperous than us. They might leave the land. And we can't have them leaving the land because Egypt would have had a problem then. So this begs the question, why was Israel fruitful? Yes, we know God blessed them. But there's, there's more. Why did God bless them? And it goes back to that passage in Genesis 17, 6-7, when he says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you 
and to your offspring after you. Praise God. I mean, we can see this happening now. Imagine to those old Jewish readers who are reading through Genesis for you know, their time in the synagogue, whatever, seeing that, seeing how here they're sitting in their land, numerous, exceedingly fruitful, and reading this passage for an everlasting covenant to be your God, to you and to your offspring after you. And if we ask the question why, it's not because of Israel, it's not because of the covenant, but it starts with God, because of Him. God made a covenant. God chose Israel. God led them to the land of Egypt. God kept them exceedingly fruitful, even in the face of persecution and uh, suppression. And yes, Israel had multiplied because God had told them to. They obeyed. But how wonderful is it that when we do what God tells us to do, we are blessed. Seems maybe a little bit obvious to say that, but we sometimes take that for granted. When we do what God has told us to do, He blesses us for that. Sometimes we feel, I don't want to do this. It's a little bit difficult. It's a little bit out of my depth. Uh, I don't know how to do that. I can't speak to people. I can't build some things. I can't hand out a Bible to someone, whatever it happens to be. I can't go and work there. I can't live here. It's not my kind of um, vibe. I can't go to that church because they just sing hymns and they look all dead and lifeless. But when God tells us to do something and we actually do it, He blesses us. He prospers us. Not because we are doing something special. Maybe because we're being obedient, yes. But because our aim, our goal, our service in building the kingdom of God is giving glory back to Him. What we do is for His glory. And when we start to think like that, when we start to realize that, the blessing that we receive for doing what God has told us to do is not for us, but it's for Him. It's because we show of His glory. He shows His glory through us. He shows His grace through us. He shows His mercy through us. God said He would, and God is faithful to His promises. He wants to bless us, and He wants to make us prosper. Not financially. We like to hear that, okay, God wants me to be rich and healthy and wealthy and happy and healthy and uh, not lacking anything. Yes, of course He does, but in Him, in His Word, not in our minds. So when I say He wants to bless and prosper us, it's according to His ways. When He gave the Israelites the law, it wasn't to keep them on the straight and narrow. Yes, it was, because he wanted them to be a holy people. But why? So that they could be blessed, so that they could live a blessed life. So they could live a holy life for him to show of his glory and his majesty and his power to all the nations. So when you look at the law and the Ten Commandments, everyone loves going to the Ten Commandments, um, especially non-believers. It's the first thing they think about, the Ten Commandments. Why? Because that's kind of the foundation of ethics and morality in our world. Even unknowingly, everyone just automatically goes to the Ten Commandments. But they will think of it as 
you can't do this, you can't do that. There's so many rules to Christianity. There's so many rules to following Jesus. But it's not about keeping us in a box. It's about blessings. And it's about blessing us for him. Because he wants to bless us to show off his glory. He's given us his commands to bless us, make us prosper for him. It's all about him. It's not about us. And that's where we get confused. We make it about us. We want to think, okay, well, I need to be blessed so I can do this more. Or I've just started a church, so you need to give us more money so that we can be blessed and carry on our good work over here. And that's fantastic where that's happening. But are you feeding all those hungry people because you're making a name for yourself? Because you want more people to come to your church? Because you want more people to be saved in your church? Or is it for the kingdom of God? Is it for His glory? And it doesn't just have to be in the church. It can be in our lives as well. We are fruitful because God has blessed us for Him. And like Israel, if we allow God to work in us, um, then things are going to happen. Things are going to start to happen. And we see in Philippians 2.13, uh, for it is God who works in you. Not me, not my ideology, not my family background, not my culture, not my nationality. We often see today lots of people trying to excuse behaviors or accommodate behaviors because of a whole bunch of various factors. I speak a different language, I have a different culture, I come from a different country. Now some of those things are irrelevant. Um, if you eat with a, a fork or you eat with chopsticks, that's irrelevant to salvation and to the Bible. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about the things of God. When it comes to the gospel, we heard a wonderful thing in Home Cell this last week um, from Justin Peters. He said, if you have to add an adjective to the gospel, then, then you're talking about something else. If you have to talk about the social gospel, the prosperity gospel, the healing gospel, you know, even saying the good gospel, what are we referring to? If we start adding adjectives and everything to the gospel, we've missed the gospel. And so with all of that, when it comes to the word, when it comes to what we are doing for God, it is him who works in us. God works in you. But why? To will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in you for his will and for his good pleasure. God works in you for him. And that's what we see in Israel. God working through Israel for him. And like Israel, when God works through us, there is, oh, excuse me. <clears throat> there is blessing. When God works through us, there is blessing. Yes, for us, yes, we can experience that blessing. But it's not because we are special. And that's another issue. We think it's all about us. We think we are fantastic. We think that we have some kind of uh, uh, privilege and a special honor due to us because we serve the Lord, because we call ourselves a Christian and because we are the chosen people. But Israel was blessed, not because they were a special people or because God had chosen them or because God had looked after them. All of that plays a part, yes, but ultimately, they were blessed because God chose them to demonstrate His glory. God chose to bless them 
for him, as I've said. And God's will and good pleasure is not going to involve a teaspoon of blessing, but an ocean. When God does something, he does it right. Some of you might have heard me talking about God's boisterous blessings. <laughs> when he blesses, it's boisterous. You know, it's loud and powerful and in your face. It's not just a little teaspoon of something. And again, that's what we see in Israel. And we can be fruitful too in our families, in our businesses, in our work, in our free time, in our ministry, when we do what God has told us to do. When we are blessed because we do what God has told us to. And when we take that blessing and give it back to Him. When we take that blessing and use it for His glory to show other people who He is. Israel was fruitful because God was working through them for His will and pleasure according to the covenant promises He had made to them. Amen. Excuse me. Israel was fruitful. Secondly, Israel was frightful. Israel was frightful. The new Pharaoh in Egypt who arose, we read, all came to power, some translations. It actually reads, the Hebrew word, rose against came to power against. So he came to power against the existing kingdom is the conclusion that some scholars have come to. Thus, this was probably a, a complete new dynasty in Egypt. And we do see in the history of Egypt that there were a group called the Hyksos kings who were West Asian, probably Canaanites, probably Mesopotamians, uh, Mesopotamians West, West Asians in that sense. And they were called the Hyksos, and they had come to power at some point in the history of Egypt. So some, some scholars have linked that group of people to, uh, to the Pharaoh that we read about now. And that would make sense because this Pharaoh didn't know Joseph, simply because he wasn't around there, because his dynasty had come from the outside, conquered Egypt, and now all of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of Israelites living here, Obviously, they're going to be a threat to him. He did see how big and powerful and mighty Israel was becoming as a nation. Excuse me, he didn't know Joseph, but he could see Israel. Possible military threat they posed, especially for the rebels. I'm sure there were still a couple um, purebred Egyptians left in Egypt at that stage who weren't too happy with foreigners ruling them. Or it could be that they were weak and vulnerable. They had just conquered this land and they were open for attack or rebellion. And so there was a, a military threat there. Uh, but there was also a social threat. These kings from the Hyksos, the foreigners, needed to establish their reign and rule. They needed to lay down the rule and make sure that people were submissive. And if there's a whole mighty nation, Israelite nation here, that's obviously a big problem. And it also explains why you'd maybe want to enslave them. That's probably <laughs> the best kind of um, solution. If you're struggling with people at work, just enslave them. You know? <laughs> make, make them work for you that they can't ever rise up and rebel. Until, until Moses comes and leads that person to your manager. Then it's the end. But Israel was frightful in the eyes of the Egyptian rulers. There's no confirmation for this. Uh, we don't know who the Pharaoh of, of Exodus was, and we don't know for sure um, if they were the Hyksos kings. 
But in this sense, it does make a little bit more um, academic sense why they would be afraid of them and why they were frightful and why the pharaohs didn't know Joseph. But anyways, what we see is persecution. The solution to having these people here that are becoming big and powerful and posing a threat is persecution. Even ordering the midwives to kill newborn baby boys. Yet despite the repression, suppression, and oppression, God granted the Israelites provision, protection, and progression. You like those alliterations? They tried to break them down. They tried to bind them up. They tried to stop them from being prosperous. But God lifted them up. God set them free. God prospered them according to his riches, according to his will. Like we said, Israel was fruitful and blessed for God. And so that also made Israel frightful because God was on their side. Because God was blessing them, despite the persecution, despite the oppression, God had anointed them. God had chosen them for him, for himself. Not because they're anyone special, for himself. And God is faithful to his promises. God is not going to have his name dragged through the mud. And even though they're enslaved, even though they were persecuted, we read they were exceedingly Israel was frightful because they had God Almighty. We read in John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Why did the Egyptians hate the Israelites? Not because of the Israelites, because of God. God blessed them, God prospered them, despite everything bad that was happening. And yet the world still persecuted them, the Egyptians still persecuted them. Because the world hated him first. And we see through all the, throughout the whole church history, we've seen that. I mean, especially in the early church. Christians were being persecuted like mad. <laughs> in Rome, they were being led out into the circus daily, getting killed and slaughtered and eaten by lions. There's a great fire in Rome, and Nero blamed them. And that's when everything really got, got bad and ugly. And what did the Christians do? There's no, there's no account of the Christians being rebellious or being socially um, rebellious. All they were doing was preaching the gospel. All they were doing was preaching Jesus. And the world hated them for that. And preaching Jesus doesn't start when you take a Bible and read from it and speak to somebody. Preaching Jesus starts with how we live. Let your light shine before all men so that they may see you and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It starts with how we interact with one another. It starts with how we live. And the world hated him first. In Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? 
Oh, we love this verse. If God is for us, who is against us? You come at me, PCMM municipality. <laughs> you come at me with your water accounts. You come at me, um, that person who's sticking stuff up on my wall and I don't want it there. You come at me, plumber, who told me you'll be here three weeks ago and you haven't pitched yet. You come at me, mother-in-law, <laughs> trying to win me over with your baked rusks. <laughs> if God is for us, who is against us? That's not saying that people aren't going to go against us. Paul's not saying you won't have. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And we keep having to repeat that verse, but because that's the reality of life. But what are you saying is that nothing that has consequence, that has meaning, that has significance can come against us. If God is for us, who's us? Those who are in the body of Christ. Those who are living according to his word those who are obeying, those who are being faithful, those who are living in the kingdom, not living in the world. If God is for us, who are living in the kingdom, who are doing what he has commanded, who are loving him, who are loving each other, who is against us? Lots of people, everybody, the world hated you, the world hates you because the world hated me first. That's what he said. Who is against us that can lead to anything that's meaningful? Who is against us that can separate us from the love of God? Who is against us that can, that can make our salvation run dry? Who is against us that can crush our joy forever? That's what Paul is saying. Nobody. Nothing of significance. We have God on our side when we are on His. Who wants to be on God's side this evening? Be on His side. Who wants God on their side? Be on his side. Israel was on God's side, and God was on their side. And that's why they were frightful to the Egyptians. Uh, I'm sure you've heard me speaking about my righteous judgment as well. Sometimes uh, I imagine that, or I don't want to say wish for, but, but I have to admit there have been a little bit of a longing. Not a longing, I don't know what the right word a, a watered-down wish, you know what I'm saying, a, a little bit of a desire for, for the Holy Spirit to give us some provision for, for righteous judgment in, in my righteous right hand, that, you know, when that car that doesn't stop at the stop street and almost wipes you out, you know, just somehow to miraculously stop them and, and, and give them a little bit of righteous judgment. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> <laughs> That, that person that's just that's getting on your nerves, that, that's, that's getting on the gospel's nerves, <laughs> you just want to give them a little bit of encouragement, righteous encouragement. But we do that every single day when we are living as God wants us to live. We are doing that just by living in his word, just by living according to his promises, just by being blessed for doing what he has told us to do. We are giving the enemy a lack of fat clap across the face. And that's why we are frightful. That's why Israel was frightful, because they were on God's side. And we too are frightful to the enemy when we are on his side. We have nothing to be afraid of. 
The world has everything to be afraid of. That's why they will persecute you. That's why they will oppress you. That's why your families won't talk to you and ignore you. That's why you will have people falling away. We are frightful because we are on God's side and because he has blessed us for him. Your fruitfulness is frightening, just as Israel's was. Lastly, Israel was faithful. Israel was faithful, firstly, because they did what God said, and secondly, they feared God. The Torah has no word for religion. The old, oldest Jewish text, Hebrew text, there's no word for religion. And so they use the expression, they feared God. They feared God. They revered Him. And I like that because religion is a noun. Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm religious. But when we fear God, when we revere Him, we are doing something. We are verbing. Religion is not some stationary, I go to church and I take communion and I sit in the pew and I listen to what the preacher has to say and my children go to Sunday school. Religion is fearing God, revering Him, obeying Him. And these two work in connection with each other. We do because we revere. We do because we fear. We obey because we know that He is our Almighty. He's our sovereign. He's our creator. We do God's will because we fear Him. And we are fruitful and we are frightful when we are faithful. Israel wasn't fruitful and frightful because they were just chilling, but they must have been faithful. They must have been obedient. And while we read, they multiplied. They did what God had told them to be fruitful and multiply, and they did. And because of that, they were exceedingly fruitful. Now, we do not know for certain if all Israel was faithful and to what extent. We don't have any indication that we read Israel was a faithful nation at this point in time. In fact, we do read that Israel was very unfaithful in the desert afterwards in Exodus. But as we see in the story of the two midwives the, and the fact that Israel did multiply as God has command, had commanded them to do, there is a measure of faithfulness that is evident here. And like the midwives, uh, they chose to serve God in the right way. Very important. Sometimes we want to serve God in our own way, but there is the right way and there is the wrong way. The right way is the gospel. The right way is his word or how he has told us to worship him. Everything else is the wrong way. So for the right way and for the right people, For them it was Israel. The midwives knew that Israel were the chosen people. If you love Jesus, if you profess him as your Lord and Savior, if you know you belong to the kingdom of God, you are the right people. Amen? And so like the midwives, they chose to serve God in the right way for the right people. That was their faithfulness. And it was not just about culling the Israelite population, as maybe Pharaoh thought. 
Perhaps they stood to gain from the killing. You know, maybe Pharaoh had, blessed, had promised them great riches if they did that horrible deed. Or there was even more cause for them to fear for their lives. Well, I need to do this, otherwise we're in trouble and our families are in trouble. So there's plenty of reason for them not to um, not kill the baby boys. There's plenty of reason for them to do what Pharaoh had told them to do. But instead, they chose to place Pharaoh in an inferior position to God. They chose to defy Pharaoh because they knew who God was. They knew what God had told them to do. Their faithfulness was demonstrated in obedience. Excuse me. Faithfulness demonstrated in obedience. Are we obedient? Now that doesn't always mean like when your father or your mother tells you to take down the washing and if you don't do that, you're gonna get a, a little bit of a tap on the bum. This is obedience in our lives, in how we carry ourselves. In every little thing that we do or not do and say and not say, it has to do with our obedience. If we choose to tell a little bit of a lie over here, that's disobedience. Not because God has given us something directly, don't do this or do do this, but he's given to, that, to us all of that in his word. Amen? It's all there. And so that's why we need to know who God is and we need to know what his word says. Because if we don't, we could be living in disobedience and we could be very unfaithful. And faithfulness also extends beyond religion. Like I said, to a genuine reverence, a fear of God, a doing, a longing, a desire to serve him. In 1 Samuel 15, we see, Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Now we know the sacrificial system was not around at this time, but this is what I mean, that religion does not constitute faithfulness without obedience. Religion, faith, cannot be faithfulness without obedience. And so when God had given them a sacrificial system, to them the religion was to sacrifice. To us religion is to come to church and maybe pay a tithe and maybe do something else. But where's the obedience? Where's the obedience in all of that? Faithfulness cannot be separated from obedience. In fact, faithfulness is obedience. The Israelites should have sacrificed out of obedience from faithfulness, not because it was merely the law, we need to obey God and not just obey our sacrificial system of going to church and praying and reading our Bibles, as I said. Maybe that becomes a sacrificial system to us. But where's the obedience there? Are we listening to the voice of the Lord? That's better than the fat of rams. That's better than sitting in the pews, but listening to him. And that's what we see in Israel in their sojourn in Egypt. Deuteronomy 30, 16. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, 
and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Why would he bless them? For him. But obedience to him, keeping his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase. Then you will be blessed in the land that he is leading you to be in. Faithfulness to God leads to fruitfulness for us and frightfulness to the enemy. For only Israel remained faithful throughout. But thank God that we do have the Holy Spirit who leads us in all truth and righteousness, who helps us to remain faithful, even when we can't. And that's the most beautiful thing about obedience and faithfulness. There's this little passage in 2 Timothy 2.30. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Amen? If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Look at someone and say, he remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. He's never going to let us down because he cannot let himself down. And if we stay in him, that's all we gotta do. That's all we have to do, be obedient. Stay with Christ, stick with him, be on his side. Remain faithful and he will be faithful. Even if we are faithless, we can be obeying, we can be doing what he, want, what he needs us to do. We can't see things. Maybe we become discouraged because there's no end to this problem. There's no solution. There's no progression of what I'm doing. My ministry is not getting anywhere. My work's not getting anywhere. My family is not getting anywhere. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Stick with him. Stay with him. He's promised never to leave us nor forsake us. And in all of this, we need to remember too that Egypt is a metaphor for sin, a metaphor for living outside of God's promises. And as Israel was sojourners in Egypt, we are sojourners of this world. This is not our permanent residence. We are here temporarily. Some of us for 27 years, some of us for 52 years, some of us for 99 years, some of us for 120 years. But we are temporary residents of this place. God's given it to us to enjoy, to work the land, to look after it, but we are temporary here. We are citizens of heaven if we are with him, if we are in his body. And so, like Israel, as we sojourn in the world, we can be fruitful, and our fruitfulness will be frightfulness for the enemy, but it all starts with faithfulness. If we are faithful, we will be fruitful and frightful. So to conclude, Israel was fruitful. God was working through them. Why was God working through them? Yes, because God said he would. Yes, because God had made a covenant with them but so that they could live his glory, so that they could be beacons of who he was, so that that blessing would be used to give glory and honor unto him. Israel was frightful, why? Because God was on their side, because God was blessing and prospering them, because God was making them more numerous and more numerous, even when the Egyptians wanted to kill them and persecute them and chuck all their babies into the river, their baby boys. God was on their side. And lastly, God was their almighty. Israel was faithful. 
and like Israel in their time of sojourning in the land of Egypt, we need to be faithful. God will make us fruitful. We will be frightful to the enemy. So we need to be prepared as well. You will be persecuted. You will be oppressed. You will have people going against you because the world hated him first. Sometimes they can't even explain it. You don't know why people are being nasty to you. You don't know why people are, are uh, discriminating against you. You don't know why people are doing this ugly thing towards you. How? Why me? What have I done wrong to you? I'm even a good person in the sense that I'm not a criminal and I'm not just cold-shouldered all the time. You know, I help old ladies across the road. I help pay for that guy's education. I don't swear. I don't do all of this. You know how the world perceives some form of morality, which they can't without the word, I mean, if we face it. But there's just something about it. They can't explain why. But you know why. It's because the world hated him first. But you know, we are sojourners. We are sojourners in this world. And one day he will come back to fetch us or he will call us home. And that's what we can cling to. Hold to his hand. God's unchanging hand. Amen. Amen.